Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Hi, and welcome back to Your Family Dog. I'm Julie Fudge-Smith, and I'm here with Tina Spring. And surprise, surprise, we don't have a guest today, so you get the two of us. So we decided, well, what do we want to talk about? And, you know, people sometimes ask me, well, what do you talk about with other trainers? And I, I wanted to say, oh, I don't know. We, we, talk, we talk about the weather. We talk about, you know, politics. We talk about our clients or we compare notes on clients. Uh, we don't actually talk about them behind their backs per se, but we do exchange notes and we get information from one another. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with this person and I don't know how to help them. And so we exchange a lot of information that way. So I thought perhaps this particular episode of Your Family Dog, you could have an insight into what trainers talk about with one another. So Tina and I are just going to have a conversation, and it's going to go the way it always goes with Tina and I. We'll probably cover a lot of different things, but we're going to talk about things that are important to us as trainers and perhaps things that we kind of wish the general public knew a little bit more about which is one of the things that trainers talk a lot about is I wish I knew how to explain X, Y, Z better, or I wish that, you know, people in the general public understood what breed intensity is all about. So one of the things that we were chatting about before I started recording all this was um, some of the differences between dogs. As, as some of you may or may not know, in my life as a dog owner, there have been two dogs that I've had to put down due to behavior issues, uh, both of which had to do with aggression. And in talking about that with Tina, she gave me some wonderful insights that the two breeds of dogs that I had to put down, one was a Nova Scotia duck tolling retriever, and the other one was a Bernese mountain dog. And I always get, no, nobody's ever heard of, of tollers, so there's not a whole lot of information out there in the general public about what the heck is a toller and, and you know, it's the smallest of the retrievers. And, and you'll know it because it'll be barking. Yes. And it looks kind of like, a, <laughs> and it looks like a fox. It's like you kind of have a fox on the leash with an intense stare at you and it is barking and it is a little bit more <laughs> you, you sort of nervous. Um, that Molly, our Nova Scotia duck tolling retriever, had a very difficult beginning in life. We got her from the Humane Society, and she was about one, and she had been turned in by a neighbor who had been taking care of her while the owners went on vacation, and they never came back. And she had had a very isolated, oh yeah, she'd had a very isolated beginning. Um, if I knew then what I know, know what I know now about dogs. I likely would not have allowed the adoption to go through because thinking back now on her cage behavior and right of other things, I didn't know what we were getting into when we, when we got Molly and I'd literally spent thousands of dollars trying to fix her when we were not able to do that. And she had very little resilience as far as um, being able to come back from um, her tough beginnings um, and be with positive reinforcement training. And then our burner we had to put down because he um, he bit our grandchild in a, a rather, let's put it this way, in a way that made me hesitant, if not uncertain, about whether or not I felt I could trust him in the future. So, right. Tina, what did you tell me about burners that, and tollers that made me feel so much better about my life? So, so, and, and I have to preface this by saying, so I have done one behavioral euthanasia in my own family. Um, it was a dog that, um, came back to the breeder at about two and the, like, and I, and I was young. I didn't know everything I don't know now, probably knowing what I know now, I would have euthanized sooner rather than later. But, um, the about those two breeds is there's an awful lot of intensity yes i see and and i totally own like i am not going to see the perfect toller and the perfect burner they're never going to come across my desk right so 
preface anytime I'm talking about a dog breed. <laughs> Generally speaking, I'm going to be able to tell you all the garbage, like all the bad stuff, right? Your vet can probably tell you all the medical problems a breed has. I can probably tell you all the behavior problems that they're going to have. Um, but my experience of both tollers and of burners is that there is an awful lot of intensity there and they don't seem to have a way to turn it off. They're kind of serious. And so when I, and I actually got this from Colleen Pilar, your, your first, my first wife, wife yes. your first co-host wife, my dear friend, um, and my so, dear friend, we love her, your dear friend, our yes. dear friend uh, <laughs> is that she once said to me when she's counseling a family about a family dog, number one on her list is sociability. And I would mm -hmm. absolutely agree. Absolutely. Right? absolutely. Like I want, what I would say is that a, a dog who, who, or even a human here, we'll use human. So we take breed and dog out of it. Um, many of the people who work in the animal services industries do so because we're kind of broken and we don't really like people. We like animals that feel safer and uh, more comforting. And so if I often ask people, like, have you worked with a trainer before? Because if they have, they're probably a little bit gun shy. <laughs> because <laughs> even the most positive trainers, in my experience, are kind of not really all that nice to the people. Right? It's like dealing with the people is the price they have to pay to get to play with the dog. So I've had people actually say that to me. I've had trainers and pet sitters actually say that to me. And I'm like, yeah. you can't do it. No, that, get out of the industry. Yeah. In fact, I've had people say to me, they've worked with a, with a, with other trainers in our area and they'll come and say, you know, she was good, but you were so much nicer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like I have a really intense personality, but I'm still like way nicer than I hear horror stories and that doesn't, yeah. and I am boldly imperfect. Like I own that as well. Like I have, right. I have days that I'm grouchy or my back hurts just like anybody else. Um, or days, or I, you know, earlier this week, I had to recommend euthanasia to a family in a dangerous situation. Well, that takes a huge toll on me. I'm not in the business of, you know, deciding life and death stuff like that. It's not why I do this, but sometimes that is the role that I'm right. I'm going to be burdened with and it should be burdensome, right? I don't, Absolutely. I don't take it lightly. So, and sometimes in my experience, families just need someone to say, I trust you to know what's right for your family. Absolutely. And that's what I say to people, too. I, I One of the things and, I always say is, is I can give you some guidelines. I can tell you how I see your options laying out. and But I trust that you know your situation far better than I will ever know it. And so, right. therefore, you need to make the decision. I'm just here as a springboard for you and to perhaps give you idea of what your options realistically are or are not. Right. So, so anyway, so when I was, when you were talking about your burner and your toller, yeah, neither of those stories really surprised me, sadly, because mm. they're dogs that in my experience are really, really intense. And when they react, their reactions seem kind of out of proportion with the stimulus. Yes. Right. I would so say it's almost like they're too tolerant and then they're not. And then it's like an explosion. Yes, I would agree. Yeah. I would. And so when so. we have dogs, so one, I look for sociability, how social is the dog, not only with people or children or all different, you know, people in wheelchairs and all the things, but also with other animals, because I'm very sensitive to kids getting caught up in the middle of a dog fight. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, it's a big problem. So just because we have a breed or a breed group that's crazy, super social with people, if that dog doesn't like other dogs, that is already one red flag for me. One, because dogs are going to tend to treat children more like another dog because we can't, they're not grownups, right? They're kind of weird. They, look, kids, God bless them. <laughs> they're like in this weird in between for dogs. 
right? Mm -hmm. But also because I am sensitive to if Billy is riding his bike with Rufus on the leash and Rufus takes off to attack Tilly down the road, Billy's going to get in the middle of that to try to break up a fight. And that's spectacularly dangerous, right? So that's one thing. And then the other one is whether or not a dog inhibits their bite matters. A dog, I so I had a dog on my service years ago who lived to the ripe old age of 15, who was one of those breeds that we would tend to go, wow, that like that's a breed that stereotypically does some biting, was a fearful dog. At the time I saw him when he was about two, I think he had already bitten like 60 times, but he had never even bruised someone. He had never broken the skin. He -hmm. never injured another living thing. So his whole life, that dog, yes, he bites. Absolutely. He bites. And we should be careful that there's not an escalation, but that dog is inherently, and this is going to sound so wrong to people, that is inherently a safe dog because he inhibits his response versus the dog who bites once and you need 25 stitches in your face. Yeah, that is not actually a safe dog. No, it's not. Or a dog that is may start out testing a bite. They're like, okay, I'm going to deliver a bite and maybe it scratches. But then the next bite's a puncture. And then the next bite is a puncture top and bottom. And then the next bite is multiple puncture wounds. That's the other that that's another dog that scares me because I see the severity of the bite increasing as well as perhaps the frequency of the bite. And and that's another scenario that I think you have to to really ask yourself, you know, can I live with a dog like this? Because where is where is this bite history headed? So it's not only is it the severity and the bite inhibition, but is the bite inhibition changing over time? So and which and which teeth the dog's using matters mm-hmm. right like um if they're using canines they're being defensive so whether or not anyone ever intended for that dog to feel threatened that dog feels threatened mm-hmm. so can we can we help the dog become more comfortable with whatever it was that was happening surrounding that situation maybe but maybe we can't Right. And then there's management and people don't like to talk about muzzles. I will tell you, I muzzle train fearful dogs constantly mm-hmm. because it at a time when there's not social distancing, it gets the dog space, which is all that dog really wanted. Right. So right. I can manage I can manage the behavior of other humans by having my fearful dog muzzled, not in in a, in a humane, safe, already conditioned. The dog is comfortable with it. It fits well. The dog can eat, breathe, bark, chew on a stick. They can do all of the things except bite. Um, and, and actually, like the customer I had this morning that we were talking about muzzle training, I said, when my two feral dogs, either of them are in the car with me, they're muzzled. Not because they've ever bitten anybody. They haven't. But because if I had a medical emergency... No one would be able to render aid with either of these dogs in the car because they would be terrified. And I don't want them shooting my dog. So if my dogs are muzzled and on a leash, then a first responder can reach in, take a very frightened, very rah, 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 you're scary dog out of the car and render aid. Right. The the thing that, that I love about muzzles is they do, as you said, they do exactly what you want them to do, which is keep people at, a, at an appropriate distance because nobody wants to go near a muzzled dog. So what you're doing is you are giving the dog what it really needs. And if you're using, you know, a good, comfortable basket muzzle, you can still be providing treats to that dog so that yeah. as people go by and they're, they're at an appropriate distance of the dog, you can still be feeding and counter conditioning the trigger of the approach of that person. So, um, muzzles I mean, we are, put seatbelts on in the car, right? We, we, we use a certain prophylactic, like it doesn't mean it's a bad dog, right? It just, it just doesn't. It, 
it, it just doesn't mean that. And so like, do I get dirty looks from people and do I get muttered inappropriate comments? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I can handle those. I'm a grown up. Yeah. It's an opportunity to educate, right? I don't put us, and this is how I handle it. Well, I handle it more crassly than this, but we're a G rated show. I I say to the person, I don't put a seatbelt on, on the day that I'm going to have a car accident. I put a seatbelt on every time. I I don't put a motorcycle helmet on. On the day I'm going to crash my motorcycle, I put a motorcycle helmet on and all of the gear all of the time, every time I ride the motorcycle, because I don't, I don't control the silliness that squirrels do. And I can't reliably predict that. I also, by the way, cannot reliably predict that some overwhelmed, awesome mama isn't going to drop the leash of a cocker spaniel that's reactive and have it jump my dog. Right. And I don't want my dog to hurt your dog because something got away. Like we all screw it up. All of us. Right. And and you know what? It's not as if we are going out there intentionally screwing up. Sometimes stuff just happens. I just like this was a rather innocent screw up. But we my daughter and I, this is several years ago when we had our golden and I had my first flat coat Bingley and we were out walking in the evening. It was a summer evening. So we were out after the sun had gone down. So it was nice and cool. We were walking up at the local university by the um, athletic field. And um, I was talking and Bingley moved one way and the leash, I, I dropped the leash. Okay. Usually not a big deal, except then he charged, he charged up the hill and grabbed onto a skunk. So she's got the skunk. And he's waving his head back and forth. And the the rear end of the skunk is going in this arc, this 180-degree arc, spraying the entire time, right, as he's shaking the skunk. So I go charging up the hill, and I said, zip, bangly, drop it. So he drops it. But unfortunately, the skunk is tangled in the leash. So I grab one end of the leash is attached to my dog. The other end of the leash is now wrapped around the skunk. So I kind of grab it, and I shake it and the skunk goes flying through the air does like a 360 and lands and he's okay well okay so then the whole rest of the night i'm dealing with skunk stuff right well it was you know it was a mistake on my part i dropped the leash but the stuff like that just happens and you have to and, and so the consequences on that particular one were not nearly as serious as it could have been if you know, I'd had an aggressive dog and he'd taken off and, you know, gone after another dog or whatever. That's why we have backup systems so that in well, case this I, stuff and happens. And I could see, like, when I talked about, like, my dogs are muzzled in case somebody would need to en- render aid, I saw your face change and you went, oh, crud, I never thought about that. Yeah, no, I hadn't. So now I'm so now I'm thinking, like, well, shoot, now I'm the bad owner. Cause, no, you're not the bad <laughs> owner, you goofball. I'm just <laughs> saying, like, so... Yeah, of our four dogs, the pug would think that the first responders were there to love him. (laughs) Right? But the other three dogs are more sensitive than that, and it would be an overwhelming situation, and they would not not be well-adjusted to what's going on. Right? So I do wonder, like, how often do first responders, maybe that's what I should do is, ask some first responders what their preference is about how dogs are managed in cars. I bet they prefer dogs in crates. Probably. I would bet they do. I would right? bet they do. Or secured in the back seat, which is right. how my dogs ride. Right. But right. the, cause I don't have room for crates. I don't have crates big enough for everybody. And my car's not big enough. Well, I do you have know. crates big enough for everybody, but they don't fit in my car. Yes. So, I'm in the same situation. So, so yeah. So I think, So things that I wish people, what you and I were talking about before we started recording, I wish people understood that vets are asked to answer questions that they are not taught how to answer. Like they, they are not given very much on behavior and often what they're taught on behavior in vet school is really antiquated information. The same can often be said about nutrition. It can probably be said about a lot of things. And so every once in a while, I get a client that, that will say, well, you know, I talked to my vet about this and my vet decided that it's X, Y, Z. 
And I, I think to myself, okay, well, like what, like, okay, what are they basing that on? Like, cause they, that's not like by the empirical definition, not what's happening. Right. And, and I don't, mm-hmm. I'm so sensitive. I don't want to put owners in the middle between me and the vet. I, I will tell people, I don't know everything. I know some things, but you need to defer to your vet on medical. And I, I do wish sometimes vets felt comfortable having someone in their community who does behavior work, who they trust, who they can say, you know what, I need to find out more or I'll have my friend who does behavior call you or whatever. Um, I think they're pressured a lot to have answers. I I do too. Unfair. Like there's a ton of medical stuff. I absolutely unequivocally do not know. And, and I, immediately say like, let me reach out to my veterinary friends and see what I can find out for you. Um, because it, it's, it's too much for it. I mean, there are how many veterinary behaviorists are there in the country? 65. Um, I think there's 75 worldwide. Right. So what are the chances your vet has a whole bunch of training in behavior? They don't. They don't. And, and they can't possibly. I mean, if you think about it, what are vets asked to do and learn in four years of vet school? Right. And to be fair to vets, which I endeavor to be, vets very rarely see a dog at their optimal behavioral levels, right? Like they right. are so used to seeing dogs that are stressed that honestly, they don't get a good view of what typical looks like sometimes, right? Like I can tell you all the worst things that I see in all these different breeds, right? The behavior stuff, Mm -hmm. the same is true for our vets. Our vets see animals who are basically experiencing an alien abduction with cheese, right? So there's like the dogs are stressed. And so my experience, and, and even like I have a vet tech on staff, she will tell you like her vets, will say things about behaviors and she's like, oh, for goodness sakes, no, that's not like, these animals are really stressed, but that's normal for that vet. And they're and they're trying to just make it through their day, right? They're trying to take care of as many animals as they can in a relatively finite period of time. Well, the other thing is, is I think sometimes uh, they'll just ask somebody, well, how are things going? And then suddenly the client says something out of the blue and it can catch, you know, behaviorally, and it can catch the vet off guard too, and then feeling like I need to say something. Um, and well, I think times, that. How many times do you do a whole like behavior consult? And as you're walking out the door, they throw the customer is finally comfortable, right? So now they throw at you the big thing <laughs> yeah. that you're like. We could have opened with that. Like, I know people do that to human therapists all the time, right? Yeah. It's like, your time's up. And they go, so there was that time that this, you know, that I was attacked by a sociopath. Wait, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? So that, that would have been good. In, that's right. That would have right. been good information <laughs> to have at the beginning. Um, so, no. It, it, yeah, it, I, I see that, too. And or people will say things like I had a client yesterday who called and said, well, the big issue is that she is just she pulls and she strains on leash and she can't seem to be under control. But she started out, she said, you know, she's very timid. And when this is her daughter's dog and when she comes to my house, she runs upstairs to my daughter's room and she she never comes out. She might come out like she came out once and stuff, but she's, she's really very timid, but I, there's nothing you can do about, right? The big issue is she won't walk. I'm like, mm-hmm. that dog doesn't want to go for a walk. Yeah. That, I said, um, that dog, yeah, like that's not, that's not fun for that dog. Right. So my feeling is I was like, yes, I can. The timid is, is the issue. Yes. <laughs> this this is yes. the issue. We, right. and we need to, we need to talk about that. And she said, well, I'm going to take her into the vet. And I know who the vet is. And I was like, okay, let's, let's just, let's see what he has to say. And then we'll go from there. Right. So, so yeah, like I, I get, I, I get it. Like to a certain extent, we 
desperately want our children, our partners, our dogs to be happy. We just do. That's where we, we live. We live in, we want them to be happy. And I think, you know, we're taught all like the world is such a judgmental place right now. Like, it's like, if you don't take your dog for a walk twice a day, you're a terrible human being. And I'm like, yeah. So if the dog hates walks because they're terrified, no, it's, it's unkind. And I mean, it's amazing to me how much I have to argue with people sometimes about, no, your dog is not like your dog being cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and, and pupils being dilated and the dog being completely geeked up. That is not actually active enjoyment. That's like being drunk or high. That is not the same thing. And, and dogs, God bless them. They will put up with a tremendous amount of discomfort in an attempt to love us. So if they think, well, my mom just needs me to do this incredibly uncomfortable, terrifying thing twice a day, every day in order for her to feel good, they'll do it right. at a huge cost. Right. And then the dog pulls out of their hand and bites the neighbor dog. And I'm like, right, because your dog has never liked the walk. They have never felt comfortable. Right. And on this, your dog does not enjoy other dogs. Right. And it could be, well, why did it happen this day? It never happened before. Well, you know what? Maybe it happened that day because it got to the point where the dog's like, I can't, I just can't, I can't do this anymore. This is enough. Or maybe I don't. Right. Like I've been trying to subtly say I hate this for three years. Right. I've been a really good dog for three years. And you know what? Today, maybe my back hurts or maybe my tummy hurts. Right. Or maybe I, you know, I, I stepped on a rock in my in my paw sore. So I I can't muster the same resources that I normally have to get to tolerate this situation. The um, or, and, or maybe that other dog is actually a threat. Right. Like there's, there's a sweet woman who walks around our neighborhood who has this little black dog that's like labs something cross. She's really, really cute. She's moderately, she's guardedly optimistic about people. This little dog absolutely hates other dogs. Like it, she says it with silently seething with every (laughs) molecule of her body. And this woman, God bless her, always tries to introduce this dog to other dogs. Like She's like, no, 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 she, she's sweet. She likes other dogs. And I'm like, mm, yeah, I'm actually going to believe your dog and what your dog's telling me. So I have now just gotten to the place where I tell people in the neighborhood, just tell her your dog doesn't like other dogs. And they're like, but she does. I'm like, that's not the point. The point is you want to stop the interaction because her dog's really uncomfortable. Yeah. So I'm totally fine going, I have a stomach bug. Like that'll get everybody to leave you. Alone. <laughs> That's right. right? I'm, I'm vomiting. <laughs> I have vomiting and diarrhea. I'm contagious. Right. They will back off. So I will totally take my perfectly sociable pug who's rude and say, oh, yeah, no, he's terrible with other dogs. Be, he hates them. He'd be terribly mean to your poor sweet dog, right? Because she doesn't get that her dog's really, really uncomfortable, right? And it's and she thinks she like the dog is wonderful and friendly to her, right? So she just doesn't see it, right? And and, and it's hard to see the negative things in your dog and stuff like that. If you truly believe that, well, in this because I I, I also and I'm sure you do. I get this a lot too. Is like, well he's fine with some dogs and some people there's other dogs and people that he doesn't like. And I usually said, well, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't actually like every person I meet. Uh, what? Yeah. It, it, it's, it's hard to believe, but it's true. I don't actually like every person that I meet. And I don't actually want to spend time with every person that I meet. And so therefore, why do we expect that our dogs want to like or spend time with every person or dog that they meet and when you put it that way people begin to think oh okay so i said so it's perfectly reasonable so on the other hand that doesn't mean that your dog gets to be a total snot to every other dog and person but you need to understand right. that maybe your dog doesn't like every person and the reason that he does get along with some 
I don't know why. He just does. But if in general he doesn't get along with dogs and people, then don't force it. And I was thinking one of the reasons why I, I teach a lot of dog body language to people is not just so that they understand their own dog's body language, but so that you understand the dogs on the street's body language. So, for example, the other day, my husband and I had our two dogs out for a walk. And I know this. there is a dog that was up on the left side. And people were unloading their car. And I know that the dog was, get out of my trash. That's my dog. Um, it wasn't me. I, no, it wasn't Tina. It was my dog getting something out of the trash. No, Clemmy. Anyway, there's this dog up on the left side. And I said to her. Perfect Clemmy is getting something out of the yeah, trash. She only does an imitation of a good dog. She's not an actually a good dog. She does an imitation of one. Anyway, so there's this dog up <laughs> on the left-hand side. And I said to my husband, I said, I know that dog because I it was in one of my classes and it's very reactive to other dogs. So he said, yeah, so let's cross the street. I didn't even have to say it because he understands maybe because I forced him to do, understand this, that it's not just about protecting my dog from a reactive dog. I don't want to cause another dog to become reactive. If I can help right. a dog to be calm in a situation and, and by adding enough distance by crossing the street that that dog will stay calm and maybe alert on my dogs but not overreact, then, you know, that's one of the things that I want to do. It's not just about taking care of my dogs. It's about taking care of dogs in general or even in people. Like when we were coming back from that walk, there was a woman who was out pulling weeds on the sidewalk because apparently she's got a lot of free time. But anyway, so she's pulling out all the weeds between the bricks and the sidewalk. And I'm like, bless her heart. I hope she comes up my way. But I said to my husband, she doesn't like dogs. I know that for a fact. So once again, like watch her body language. She doesn't like she dogs. She didn't even see us coming. But yeah, but it's, it's, it's kind of like, so we crossed the street. So she didn't have to bother with the dogs. And one of the things that I think that people seem, I don't know, these days seem to forget is that sometimes it's not all about me and my dogs. Sometimes it's just all about politeness and it's all about being kind. Oh, well, yeah, that's oh, polite oh. and kind to others. I mean, <laughs> other dogs, other people. So, so I made, I made local clients really, really angry. Really? Um, yeah, Tina. And I would do it again. Because I'm coming from a place of love, right? So they have a big over, what I would call an over-socialized dog, where they've allowed an a adolescent dog to become so overly friendly that the dog is rude. Right. With, with people, right? And one of the parents of the family that owns the dog is terrified of dogs and and they were taking this sweet but jocular rude adolescent puppy to this woman's house so this poor woman is in her own home and doesn't feel safe and they persist in taking the dog and they kind of manage the dog, but not really, because that's a lot of work and it impacts how much fun and how much relaxation they have while they're on their trip. And I was like, yeah, no, it's not appropriate. I was like, board the dog. Like, don't take the dog there. It's her home. Like, she should feel safe and comfortable. <laughs> in her own home. In her own home. And I said, and honestly, when she comes to you, there should probably be a discussion. Like, do you want us to board the dog while you're here? Do you want us to help you stay in a hotel so that you have your own space. Like how can we make this more comfortable for you when you come to visit us? And I mean, you want to talk about people being mad. And I was like, all right, well, like it's, it's just, I, I don't, I don't really entire, maybe cause I'm old. I don't really entirely <laughs> understand that. If, if I had someone coming to visit who did not like other dogs, I would help them get a hotel room. And we would do things away from the house. And if on the off chance they were here, 
the dogs would be crated. I have a one of my best friends in the universe is not really a dog fan. She thinks dogs are rude. So needless to say, my fearful dogs love her because she doesn't try to make friends with them. Right. Um, and she likes them. She's not so much a fan of the pug because like he tries to crawl in your mouth because he's rude. So I manage him so that he doesn't bother her. Right. Right. Because that's, I love my friend. Right. Well, it's the same thing with, with, with uh, our puppy Clementine, who my um, younger daughter and her husband and their two kids were over uh, yesterday because her husband was helping us install a dishwasher. Anyway, they kept commenting, oh, Clemmy seems to be so much better behaved. Well, okay, she's seven. How old are you, Clemmy? She's seven, eight months old now. So she should be better behaved than when she was three months old. But when... But one of the things that we did a lot of is because in my book, humans always rate above dogs, no matter whether they're my dogs or not. Um, in general, that's my philosophy. So when my grandkids would come over and Clemmy became overwhelming, I was spending a lot of time managing Clementine. Either she was going outside or she was in her crate or she was gated in another room or she was up in my office or whatever, because, you know, she was a puppy and stupid and doing things like, you know, knocking over my 18-month-old grandson, who was, you know, fairly unstable. And I just kind of feel like I have to, it's, it's also not fair to Clementine to allow her to think that that sort of behavior around people is acceptable. And so if you can't right. control yourself because you're three months old, I get that. That means that you will have very limited interaction with the little people in my yes. life, which means you're going to spend yes. a lot of time outside with Zuzu, or you're going to spend some time in your crate with a Kong, or you're going to be up in my office with Zuzu, or you're going to be someplace where I know that you're safe and not shredding something. And where I also, I really want my grandchildren to want to come to my house and they're not going to want to come right. if every time they come, they're annihilated by my dogs. And I want, I want my grandkids to love dogs. I want little Peter, who was the right. one who was a little bit more uncertain. I want Peter. He like, da, da, da. He, so he loves them from afar. They get a little close and he gets a little, you know, this is a bit much for me. So I think it's really important to understand that this is not an indictment about whether or not your dog is good or bad. And it's not an indictment about whether about your 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 rights or their rights or whosoever rights it may be. This is all about being prudent, being kind and being polite to one another so that we can function. So now that Clemmie is like eight months old. I don't have to supervise her nearly as much because she has calmed down. She has learned to be around the children, not always well. So when like Peter's outside and he's running around the yard, Clemmy's not out there because something runs, we have to chase it. And so Clemmy doesn't get to go outside unless she's on a leash or she, but she's getting a much better recall. So I can call her back. But, but this is, this is not, a, this is not a judgment call. This is this is a practicality call. And this is a, I want to have a certain modicum of peace in my life. And I can't have it if we don't put some rules in place to keep everybody safe. Dogs and right. kids. So, you know, I, I have that program called 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy, which is, I struggle with the title every time because it's a misnomer, right? Mm-hmm. When people ask me, what is that program about? I talk about that my drive is to create Snoopy and Charlie Brown. Right. Right. Snoopy was not perfect. Charlie Brown was not perfect, but they knew each other so well that they were perfect together. And so yesterday we were doing a group coaching on Zoom for people who are subscribers to the program And one of the sweet mamas, I love her. Um, She's very, so one, moms today, and I'm assuming dads too, have a tremendous amount of pressure to get it perfect, which is insane. It is insane. Yes. It's so unfair. But her, she's talking about all the stuff going on with her puppy and that things were going really, really well. And all of a sudden, 
it is like a nightmare. And as she's talking, I said, I actually think your puppy has a UTI. And, and she was like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I would culture urine at the vet. Like, I think your puppy's sick. And so she actually messaged me today that, that yes, the puppy has a UTI and that she's so glad that she had someone who could say there, it is okay to go, you know what, you are beside yourself and insane today. And I can't, I don't have the bandwidth. So you get to play in your little puppy playpen and you can be a little bit mad and I'm going to do what I can to provide kind enrichment. But if you're like a baby velociraptor and no one can be around you today because you're just sideways, so be it. Like we do not have to include, like puppies are learning how to interact with the world. Stop allowing them to be abusive and rude. Yes. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Right. 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 So I don't include puppies in everything. And sometimes I do not have the bandwidth to manage the grandkids playing and train the puppy at the same time. So I focus on the grandkids. Yes, that's exactly what I do. Cause it's just like, you know what? I can set the puppy up in a playpen where they can't bring the grandkids down like baby wildebeest. Yeah. <laughs> right. I can totally give them a stuffed Kong to chew with inside an X pen. You cannot bite anyone from in there. And we, I can go play with the kids. I think a lot of times we just expect parents to do too much. And one of the things, and I say this all the time, I really honestly think that for the vast majority of families, trying to add a puppy to children is a horrible mistake. Yes. They don't go together like jelly, peanut butter much. and jelly. They go together like oil and water. Yeah, he's just right. Like everyone ends up mad at at everyone, and mom's just crying, drinking a box wine that's yucky out of the closet. Yeah, calling calling me crying because I'm like, right, this this is really hard to pull off, especially if you had an adult dog that was awesome and that you loved and who knew you and was your, was Snoopy to your Charlie Brown, and then we added kids in. Because that dog already had a certain amount of understanding of how the world worked and your relationship with them and your advocacy for them. And it was something you were doing together. For a puppy, your, understandably, your bond is to the children. And the puppy doesn't know what they're supposed to do. And the kids think that whatever they did with the, you know, we have friends who have had Molly Collie, they've had like eight Molly Collies. They have Collies. Every Collie is named Molly. They're all Molly Collie. Well, her grandkids think whatever they're doing with Molly Collie number nine, they can totally do with Molly Collie number 10, who's only four months old and a completely different dog. And I'm like, okay, I love you. It doesn't work that way. They're not interchangeable. Right. This puppy, this four-month-old puppy can only be a four-month-old puppy. No amount of training makes them seven. And they are not carbon copies of the dog you had before. Right. The rules are different. Right. And that's one of the things that, that I get a lot of, too, is that people will say to me, well, this is my this is my second golden or this is my, you know, third lab. And, you know, my other collie lab, golden Doberman, insert breed, never did this. And... I'm like, okay, let me ask you a question. Are, are your, your children exactly the same? Did they do exactly the same thing at each, at the phase of their lives every time? Did they come out of the womb? I knew from the instant Emma arrived that she was not her sister. That was just so sort of instantaneously <laughs> obvious that Emma was not Ellie. Um, but the other thing I'll ask people is if they don't have kids, is like, do you have brothers or sisters? And they will, right. and he's like, are you exactly like your brother? Do you do exact, do you think exactly the same way that he does? And, and you're right, related. And you got the same you, nutrition. Right, and you have genetic relationships here, you know. You're talking right. about dogs that may be the same breed, but they're not genetically related in the sense that they're, you know, they're not, they don't even have the same mother. So why are you expecting the same thing? And usually right. what I find for yeah. most people like, is that's a real relief. They're like, oh. Yeah. Oh, Okay. 
And for some, it's very and frustrating it, because the first dog was perfect and the second dog is well, not. So, so how often do you find that that person who, <laughs> who calls you and is like, okay, well, we've had a why me before. And this why me is insane. Like it's, super high energy. And our old Wyme used to just lay around. And I'm like, yeah. So the first one was the anomaly. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like the first one didn't know it, like it didn't get the memo that it was a Wyme. Yeah. It's kind of like Zuzu didn't really get the memo that she's a flat coat. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. I get that too. Right. The, the other thing is um, speaking of sort of, you know, sort of breed standards. The other thing that I get and I'm not quite sure that, that I find difficult is people will say, well, for example, I want to get a, a great Pyrenees. And I'm like, okay, are you a sheep herder in the Basque country? Because these dogs are pretty close to their original purpose. And that's in, they're very independent minded because they're bred to be that way. And so you know, unless you are herding sheep in bass country, I'm not sure that this is the perfect family dog for you. Um, but they get convinced that that's what they want. Or, or border collies are another one. That um, I mean, I have found the unborder collie border collie for someone, right? That they they had their they had a border collie shaped hole in their heart, and we went to breeders and found an adult male border collie who did not care about anything. He thought he was a couch hound. And so that was great. He was a great match. But but I think that sometimes they too, they wanted a puppy. And and I was like, okay, so so for me, when I'm helping a family find a dog for their family, right? It's a little bit like choosing like we start with listing the characteristics of Prince Charming. Right. Right. Like when I think of the list of characteristics of who a partner for me is going to be, that's going to be different than your list, right? Which right. is totally okay. Right. For both of our guys. Right. Brad probably would not find me funny. Christopher does find you funny. He made a comment on the, on the Facebook page just this morning or last night about how funny you are. So, but I start with what are the characteristics for when our family imagines life in the company of a dog, what characteristics does that dog need to have? And then from there, we start looking to what is our best chance of success having those criteria. Right. When we purchase a puppy, when we adopt a puppy, we are bringing potential into the house. Pretty much everything is unknown. Yeah. How big they're going to be, how sociable they're going to be. And they are also very changeable. If I do a temperament test for a puppy under six months old, I'm telling you that that's a, a, an assessment that's good for about 10 days. Because if anything happens and everything will happen, it changes who that puppy is. But they are not infinitely adjustable. Correct. If I have a family that has really specific needs, which in my experience, most families do, it is far easier to go find an adult dog who meets all those criteria, who we can fold into our home and the kids can immediately, I mean, of course, we have to have an adjustment period. We have to get to know that dog. But if we know an awful lot of data about that dog because he's grown up in someone else's home, then we know, does that kid chase kids on bikes? Yes or no? I mean, does that dog chase kids on bikes? Oh, yeah. Sorry. That's all right. If do have, I have seen children chase kids on bikes. Yes, yes, but, I have too. Right, like n having a lot of we know, like the the dog jumping into a cushy retirement gig is a much much easier transition. Yes. So, um, I get it. Like people are like, so <laughs> I tell people all the time, like they'll call me and they're like, we're thinking about a puppy, and I'm like have you thought in, about an adult dog? And they, they give me the whole list of things that in my experience never actually happen that they worry about with adult dogs. And I say my piece and then they get what they get because their heart wants what their heart wants. And that's awesome. And I will love and support them through that. I would have made no money if they adopted an adult dog, but because they adopted a puppy, 
I, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna need support and help. And so, because even the world's best puppy is a lot of work. Oh God. Yes. Try doing it on crutches. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, well, we have covered a lot. But uh, I think we've given some people ideas of what is it the trainers talk about? Well, we talk about the same things that you talk about because we don't have all the answers. And we talk to one another to try and figure out some of these answers and to say, okay, this didn't work for this dog. What did you try that worked? But we also talk about the fact that sometimes we fail with our own dogs. Sometimes we fail with client dogs. And that's the heartbreaker for us. The heartbreaker is when we have to, to, because every time I have to counsel on euthanasia, I feel like I failed. And because it, it's just heart-wrenching to have to face that kind of decision. Oh, it's, it's horrible. It's horrible. It, it's horrible for everything. I mean, behavioral euthanasia is hard on vets. It's hard on the trainer. It's hard on the family. Um, and it's extraordinarily it, difficult it's, on the dog, having, so having to go through it because... You're not euthanizing an, uh, an ill dog who's rather passive. It's, it's very difficult all the way around. But anyway, so we just wanted to give you a little bit of an idea of what it is that we talk about as, as trainers. What is it, the issues that we face? And to let you realize that, that we are human, too, and that we make mistakes with our own dogs. And we, uh, we, tr- we try our best. We don't have all the answers. But we do have um, what we have is experience. And what we have is, is hopefully the support of, of one another so that when you're talking to um, one of us, you're also talking to all those people that have fed and nurtured us as trainers as well. So oh, yes. with that. And I, I'm so lucky to have had so many amazing people support me in learning. Oh, and honestly, my customers fall into that absolutely. category. They teach me all the time. I love them. Like I just... I'm really, really lucky that I get to love people and dogs. Yes, yes, I feel the same way. I feel the same way. So with that, my dogs need to go out. They were telling me very clearly they were at the gate and we need to go. So thank you, Tina, and we'll see you next time on Your Family Dog. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.